Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted October 14, 2016, we talk with award-winning documentary photographer Danielle Zaltzman about her article in the new WPJ Fall 2016 issue, Kill the Indian, Save the Man, on the painful legacy of Canada's residential schools. We'll also point out other top features in the new fall issue, cover theme, History's Ghosts. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. An American warship has fired missiles at sites controlled by rebels in Yemen. The Pentagon says it's in retaliation for missiles fired by those rebels at U.S. ships. It's the first time the U.S. has taken direct military action in Yemen's civil war, which is raging between an Iranian-backed rebel group and the Yemeni government, which is backed by Saudi Arabia. Tensions between Washington and Moscow continue, with the White House and Kremlin barely on speaking terms. In the last two weeks, bilateral talks on Syria have fallen apart. Moscow has pulled out of a key deal on the storage of plutonium. That's a key ingredient in nuclear weapons. And now the White House accuses Moscow of attempting to disrupt the presidential election with computer hacking. White House officials say an appropriate response to the cyber hacking is in the works. There has been talk that the U.S. could leak, for example, Vladimir Putin's emails, if the U.S. even has them, but critics say Washington should not show Moscow the full range of America's own cyber capabilities. And back to the future, even as U.S. relations with Cuba warm up, the Russians say they're considering reopening a military base in Cuba and in Nicaragua. One American analyst tells World Policy the Russians are obviously seeking to spread their influence in America's backyard, but that Cuba has a brighter future with its giant neighbor to the north. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandes at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. That's where a lot of my whole life really started to change. Because uh, I got uh, strapped, I got uh, you know beaten up for speaking my own native tongue. I even had my tongue pulled out and pinched, you know. My strongest memory there is uh, when, when the little girl died beside me. She would have been, she must have been about six. Um, I was scared uh, why the parents were not there. That's what I was scared about. And I knew they would have, they wouldn't feel comfortable for not being there when their daughter's dying. They were never notified. Two survivors of Canada's now notorious Indian residential schools in last year's CBC TV report, Stolen Children. For more than a century, those government-backed church-run conversion operations separated children of the indigenous population from their families, harshly suppressed knowledge of their language, their history, and their culture. So harshly that thousands actually died while others bore the burden of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Twenty years after the last of these evil institutions closed, 
and more than a year after a seven-year Truth and Reconciliation Commission investigation, relatively few of that panel's 94 recommendations have taken effect or even been fully implemented, reports award-winning documentary photographer Daniela Zaltzman. Her book on the tragedy, Signs of Your Identity, will be published in October by Photo Evidence. Meanwhile, Zaltzman has contributed photos and an essay about it all to the new fall 2016 issue of World Policy Journal, History's Ghosts. The article is titled, Kill the Indian, Save the Man, on the Painful Legacy of Canada's Residential Schools. And we talked about it recently for this podcast. Daniela Zaltzman, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much, David. What first drew you to the sordid history of Canada's Indian residential schools? I first ended up in Canada in the fall of 2014. I was working on a story about how Indigenous Canadians have one of the fastest growing rates of HIV in the world. And that statistic had been shocking to me when I first read it. So I spent a month driving around British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and Ontario interviewing HIV-positive First Nations people. And almost every single person I interviewed referenced having gone to something called residential school, which I'd never heard of. Uh, and, and once I started to read more, I, I quickly realized that this public health crisis, along with a host of other systemic issues, were part of the legacy of a much bigger story. What were the school's years of operation? How many Indian kids were involved and how many are alive today? There were schools operating independently as early as the 1830s, but the beginning of regulated government involvement uh, when, when the church and government began to co collaborate, essentially, was in 1876 with an amendment to the Indian Act. Um, the schools began closing gradually in the late 20th century, and the last school to close, which was called Gordon's, shut down in 1996. Uh, an estimated 150,000 children went through the residential school system, and about 80,000 of them are still alive today. Talk about the original mandate of these schools and how it relates to that phrase in the title of your article, Kill the Indian, Save the Man. The mandate of these schools was coercive assimilation. There was this strong belief on the part of the government and the church that indigenous culture and spirituality and language and identity were somehow wrong or heathen. And the purpose of the schools was to strip all of those things away and force children to grow up speaking English, going to church, believing that Western culture was in every measurable way superior. The, the phrase itself, kill the Indian, save the man, actually came from Richard Henry Pratt, who was an American army officer. He founded the first Indian boarding school in the United States, Carlisle Indian School in 1879. And that school became the model for coercive assimilation boarding schools in both the U.S. and Canada. Well, you mentioned the United States. To be fair, we should note that uh, these and similar torture transformations were not limited to Canada. Where else could they be found? Pretty much anywhere an indigenous population has come into contact with settler colonialism, these schools have appeared. They were uniformly present throughout the former British Empire in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. The Norwegians sent the Sami to assimilation schools. The Danes did the same to the Inuit in Greenland. They were present in the South Pacific, in Latin America, and East Africa. How many survivors of the Canadian schools did you meet to photograph and talk with? In Canada, I interviewed 45 people, uh, primarily Cree tribal members who were living throughout Saskatchewan, but most of my work was focused on the province's capital in Regina. Describe two or three of your favorites among those pictured in the new WPJ issue, what they look like, what they said. 
The opening image is probably my personal favorite. Uh, his name is Mike Panay. He's photographed in profile wearing uh, the cowboy hat that he wore every single time I ever saw him. Uh, and he spent 10 years continuously away from his family from the age of 6 to 16 and talks about how he wasn't even addressed by his name as a student in residential school. He was addressed by his number. Um, he sadly passed away two months ago, but he was an incredible leader in his community, and he, he always spoke beautifully on, on the psychological and emotional legacy of residential schooling. He was maybe one of the first people to, to help me really understand what the intergenerational aspects really meant. Um, and I'll, I'll read the quote from another survivor uh, named Serafina Kay, who went to Capel Indian Residential School from 1974 to 1975, and she told me, I was raped at school. He was an old man, the janitor, and I didn't tell anyone for decades because I thought people would judge me. The only person I ever told was my mother, who went to Muscogan Residential School. All she said was that's how I was brought up, too. Wow. And, you know, all of these stories, every every story, every every interview was tough and grim and hard to listen to. But for me, this was one of the worst. There there were so many parents who went through residential school themselves and knew that they were sending their children off to a similar fate and had no power to protect them. When and how did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission get set up and who was in charge? So the TRC was funded by a settlement from the Canadian government with a mandate to collect and preserve testimony from residential school survivors and inform Canadians about what happened during the 120 years that the schools were in operation. Uh, it, was, it was chaired by Justice Murray Sinclair, a First Nations senator and former judge uh, who was actually interviewed for the piece. Give us some details of what you call its damning final report. So the TRC's final report, which is thousands and thousands of pages long, documents you know, the full scope of, of abuses. Um, you know, there was widespread physical and sexual abuse, both by clergy, school administrators, and older children who'd been abused themselves. There was what the Canadian government has now termed a cultural genocide, where children were you know, punished for speaking their own language, for wearing traditional Native clothing, for basically doing anything that in any way tied them to their own culture, identity, spirituality. Um, and and the, the charges get more and more sinister as you progress into the later 20th century. Um, there was forced sterilization performed on a number of female students. There was medical testing. Um, and even now, we still don't have the complete scope of what happened because a huge number of government records were destroyed um, before the Truth and Reconciliation was opened. So one of the survivors I spoke to details how when he was a young child, he has these vivid memories of a priest in a World War I canister gas mask opening up mason jars at the end of mass and children getting nosebleeds and seizing and fainting. And he cannot substantiate it, and I cannot substantiate it either, but he believes that the, the priest was actually unleashing some form of nerve gas on young children. It's hard to believe that the church school authorities involved took the words kill the Indian literally, but how did most of the 6,000 children who died come to do so in their care? There is a huge range. Um, you know, earlier on in, in the school's inception, it was often disease. Um, you know, children were coming into contact with people, populations, food was very foreign to them. Even just a completely different way of living um, was enough so 
you know, the, the things like tuberculosis would spread immediately and wipe out an entire school population. Um, you know, I, I went to one school in Bovell, Saskatchewan, in the far north, where in the same decade, the entire school population was wiped out once by disease and once by a fire. Um, a huge number of children died trying to run away. They were all miserable. They all wanted to go home. A lot of Canada gets desperately cold in the winter. So, uh, you know, every every spring, you know, teachers would describe coming across frozen bodies that, you know, when, when the when the snow thawed. Um, and then, you know, there was physical abuse that was so extreme um, that children would die from that as well. So, you know, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission began, the number was estimated at 4,000, and that number has climbed to 6,000 still and is presumably much, much larger because we're still continuing to discover unmarked graves and mass graves around schools. Give us a sense of the broad range covered by the Commission's 94 recommendations. The scope is huge. Um, everything from improving educational curricula around residential school history and indigenous studies to providing cultural competency training to healthcare workers and lawyers. The report calls for sweeping reforms to the justice system, to the healthcare system, to the educational system, basically all different ways to create more equity for indigenous people in Canada. Now, a little more than a year after those recommendations all were made public, you say there's a push to evaluate the nation's response. Who's behind that push? I don't know if it's coming from any one place per se, but I think we collectively always feel a need to measure progress via anniversaries. So one year on seemed like a reasonable time to pause to take stock, and I, I saw the Canadian media was avidly doing that as well. Um, unfortunately, almost none of those recommendations have been fully or even partially realized. Um, it, the, the one most notable thing that we've seen happen is just two weeks ago, a commission into missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada was, was just launched, um, and that has been years and years in the making. Uh, but, but beyond that, very, very little quantifiable change has happened. Well, we'll get to the missing women. That's something that I've been reading about in the papers up there. But uh, other recommendations uh, would seem relatively easy to implement, but have not been. Give us some examples. Many of them require minimal effort. Uh, you know, the last two calls to action involve changing the citizenship test and oath of citizenship to acknowledge Canada's treaties with Indigenous people. I mean, you know, literally altering one sentence to to make Indigenous people part of what new citizens to Canada have to think about and engage with. Um, another asks that the government restore funding to the CBC, which has this incredible Aboriginal news department that is in many ways responsible for creating a more balanced representation of Indigenous people in mainstream media. Um, you know, creating provincial and national monuments to residential schools is another. Other recommendations would require more time. Give us some examples of those. Some of the calls to action, like reducing the disproportionate percentage of Indigenous people currently incarcerated in Canada, are incredibly important but very long-term goals. Um, you know, addressing public health crises like high infant mortality rates, high suicide rates, high HIV rates are similarly really tough to do in the short term. Um, and similarly, a lot of the cultural rehabilitation efforts are are not going to happen overnight or not going to happen even in a decade necessarily you know reviving language isn't something that happens quickly or easily you know an estimated one-third of native languages in canada have died out um you know the the truth part of the trc has been addressed but the the reconciliation is much more difficult and a few of the recommendations are no longer even possible you write like what 
The one in particular I was thinking of was a call for the Pope to deliver an apology on behalf of the Catholic Church in Canada within one year of the TRC's report, and that did not happen. Uh, former Commission Chairman Sinclair seems particularly focused on transformation in Canadian education. Tell us what he had to say. I liked in particular one thing he said, uh, education is what got us into this, and it's also going to be what gets us out of this. And that's absolutely true. In the same way that assimilation policies stripped Indigenous people of their own identity and culture, education is what's needed to reclaim Native identity within Indigenous communities, and on the other side of things, to properly inform non-Indigenous Canadians about their own history so that they're they're aware of that context, um, and it's, it is the best and maybe only way to combat institutionalized racism and prejudice that is so widespread in Canada. But he says measuring the Commission's success by what's been accomplished by any of the recommendations is a mistake. Say more. So for Justice Sinclair, the most important thing to keep in mind is that the TRC has already created a shift in non-Indigenous Canadian awareness. I, I think personally that's very true. I remember on my first trip through Canada in 2014, even while the TRC was occurring, almost none of the white Canadians I encountered knew much, if anything, about residential schools. And that's not the case anymore. It has become, I think, common knowledge. Whereas in the United States, how many people know about our history with Indian boarding schools or the fact that there are 59 Indian boarding schools still operating? Um, you know, one of the first steps to healing is acknowledgement, and, and that cannot happen if people remain ignorant. So, so that, I think, was what matters most to him. You talked about the, the legacy of HIV. Uh, residential school survivors uh, and Canada's larger indigenous population continue to suffer uh, a variety of ills. Uh, one of the survivors you met summed it up, I thought, quite well. I'll read what he says. You know, all, all of this residual is still here. The drug addiction, the alcoholism, the assault, it might take another seven generations to restore our dignity as a nation. Um, and it's true. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, there is a stereotype of, you know, indigenous identity in Canada that, you know, the, the drunk Indian, the lazy Indian. Um, but, but that comes from deeply rooted historical trauma from settler colonialism. Um, but, you know, there are these elevated rates of substance abuse, whether it's drugs, alcohol, um, and, and figuring out how to undo that is, is a huge part of, of the healing process associated with the TRC. There's also a, a relatively new problem for the country's indigenous population that I read about in the local papers when I'm up at our house in Ontario, a shocking number of indigenous women killed or gone missing. What are the statistics on that? The Native Women's Association of Canada estimates that the figure is around 4,000 indigenous women who, who have just disappeared since 1980. Um, the figure varies dramatically, but they have concrete evidence names, um, and, I, and I trust their figures, um, it's, it, it is astonishing how little law enforcement has done to genuinely pursue many of these cases. Um, many of them are cold and will probably never be solved, and many of them are just hardly pursued at all. Um, in particular, there's one highway in British Columbia that's become known as the Trail of T uh, the, the Highway of Tears, rather, not the Trail of Tears, um, where, where an a disproportionate number of women who go hitchhiking because they don't have the money to afford transportation or cars and need to get from one place to the next have just disappeared. Talk about the response of Canada's new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and the indications in Ontario and Manitoba anyway that suicide or attempted suicide may be a big factor. 
in many ways, I, I said that acknowledgement is a huge part of healing. And I think one of the most important things that Trudeau did when he assumed office was make a visible statement that he cared about the rights of Native people in Canada and that he was going to try to shift policies and attitudes. Um, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of concrete evidence that that has happened. Um, but at the very least, you know, the fact that he has paid his respects to Indigenous communities throughout Canada and involved them in his own government is is deeply important. Um, in terms of suicide rates, um, you know, the, the situation has gotten dire. Um, there's one very remote First Nations reservation called Atawapiskat uh, in Ontario. It's got about 1,500 residents, um, and earlier this year, 11 people tried to commit suicide in a single day. And I, th I think the number the months prior was that almost 30 people had, had attempted suicide. Um, you know, you've got these small remote reserves that were set up. People were relocated by the Canadian government to places where they could not get access to resources, where they're often very cut off from mainstream populations, don't have access to good infrastructure, don't have access to good education life becomes very, very tough. And so because of that, you see incredibly high rates of addiction, of depression, of suicide. You have a remarkable detail about people in that area walking around with box cutters and not for uh, uh, evil purposes. No, uh, you know, there's a, a CBC story that talks about how many of the adults in the community will walk around with a set of box cutters in their pocket because they're so terrified of coming across children who are attempting suicide by hanging. Uh, um, are there indications that problems for the indigenous have actually increased, or is the government and mainstream media merely taking more notice of, of these problems, uh, especially the women gone missing, murdered, or, or otherwise dead? You know, I think it's, it's hard to say because we are becoming collectively more aware of just how horrible these histories have been. But I, I think, honestly, the state of Indigenous affairs in Canada is as good as it's ever been since first contact with European settlers. Um, you know, there is a definite reclamation of identity. There is a, a return of a lot of ceremonies that up until shockingly late in Canadian history were criminalized. Um, you know, things like powwows and, and other ceremonies were actually not legal. I mean, those are all coming back. Um, but at the same time, it, it is, too, down to media representation. Uh, and I think, I think we're seeing improvements in representation. I think we're seeing more diverse journalists, which means that you know, our, our coverage and perspective is diversifying as well. One of the survivors speaks quite eloquently about salvation in going back to indigenous culture and ways of living. Talk about that. It's maybe impossible for me to understand as someone who is not indigenous and maybe difficult for anyone else who's not indigenous to understand this. But I, I saw a direct correlation in the survivors I interviewed in people who had returned to their traditions and indigenous spirituality and people who'd been able to forgive and heal and move on from the trauma they suffered in residential school. Uh, and it's hard to say why that might be. You know, there's certainly plenty of indigenous people who have in many ways fully been assimilated into Western society and, and done very well, um, whether or not that is a psychologically healthy thing to have happened to them without their consent. Um, but, but I can absolutely say that, that seeing people who are going to, to 
sweat lodges who are smudging, who are going to powwows, that that return to something that is an inherent part of their people, their culture, their identity is, is a powerful healing force. And I have to believe that especially young people among the indigenous are, are looking for a way to carry the special strengths of their culture forward into a modern context so they can be true to themselves and also be part of the, the larger unfolding history of their country and, and humanity. Well, so that's the real question in the story. And I, I don't know that anyone has an answer to that yet. You know, indigenous North Americans have been forced since day one of contact with European settlers to figure out how exactly to exist in two different worlds. And that's both incredibly difficult and incredibly psychologically jarring. Um, and and there may not, you know, that we, we don't really have a similar ethnic parallel cultural parallel anywhere else. So, you know, I, I don't know that there is a good answer to that, but, but it is happening. There is, there is modernization and particularly in, in young indigenous artists and, and creators, you know, we're seeing ways that people can, can manage to, to walk that line. Um, but, but that's, that's, that's what needs to be figured out. Daniela Zaltzman, it's been a particular pleasure. Thank you so much, David. Daniela Zaltzman, once a college intern on my former radio show, Newsweek On Air, is now an award-winning documentary photographer, I'm delighted to report. Her book on Canada's brutal Indian residential schools, Signs of Your Identity, will be published in October by Photo Evidence, supported by multiple grants from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Meanwhile, Zaltzman has contributed the article titled Kill the Indian, Save the Man to the new fall 2016 issue of World Policy Journal, History's Ghosts. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on Ethiopia's original sin, the Oromo tragedy, and on the decline of sovereignty in the Arab world by noted Beirut-based author and journalist Rami Khoury. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.